So this evening I'd like to share a few more similes, a set of similes that I really like and Caroline and I have been enthusing about together. We both really um, appreciate these similes and it's in service of really building some of the wisdom component of our raft. So we've, we've um, given a lot of attention to mindfulness and metta or the Brahma Viharas cultivating the qualities of mindfulness and metta. And I was indulging in a kind of simile proliferation of my own earlier, thinking back to the time I mentioned I was rafting recently um, in the States on the river and the raft that we used is a catamaran and it has just two inflatable tubes with a frame that links them together and then you have some seating and stuff that you rig up and you sit on the frame and you're two oars and I was thinking that the tubes are kind of like the tubes of our raft we could think of them as being compassion kindness and the oars that keep us in the current our mindfulness but you kind of need wisdom to hold the whole thing together to to give the contraption its um solidity and coherence. So some similes in the service of building the wisdom component this evening. But to begin with the, the question of what is dukkha that we've already mm, talked a little bit about and Caroline shared this kind of etymology of dukkha or this uh, explanation of dukkha as being like the rub of the wheel that doesn't fit quite properly on it or the axle that doesn't fit quite properly in the whole of the wheel and it catches it snags so what is what is dukkha and it's described in various ways in the traditional teachings but it's really the predicament of trying to find security and lasting happiness in things that can't provide that. So we, we naturally, as human beings, as living beings, we want to find a sense of safety. We want to find a sense of being in control, of somehow being able to own and control our experience, a sense of belonging, a sense of identity. And trying to find this is what's called clinging. Clinging is trying to hold on or to control or manipulate or take a stand on or take ownership on, on things or to try to get rid of or annihilate or push them away. So these two relationships towards experience of kind of grasping it, trying to hold on to it or trying to get rid of it or push it away or fix it. And yet it's always kind of sliding through our fingers. Or you could see it as like leaning on a pack of dominoes, expecting that they're going to hold you up and the dominoes just have this way of collapsing. And so life feels always somehow incomplete, not quite satisfactory. Uh, and sometimes it's completely pulled out from under us. So another image for this dukkha of the wheel not fitting correctly is rope burn. So it's kind of like heart trying to hold onto the rope and the rope slipping away and we grip tighter to try and stop it slipping. And the harder we grip, the more it hurts. So the Buddha said that dukkha is the predicament of getting what we don't want losing what we love and enjoy and not getting what we want. And he offered one potential way of summing that up, summing up the clinging to our experience as clinging to what he called the five candors, or five strands into which all our experience can be mm, separated 
can be it's one possible way of sorting the totality of our experiences into what are called the five candors candor just means a heap so five kind of heaps of stuff that you could categorize all our experience into um, I've also heard them described as five streams or five rivers, and that somehow is almost more appropriate because our experience is, is changing. It's a, it's a moving, experiencing thing rather than static heaps of stuff. But they're like five interweaving currents, if you like, that, that according to one way of passing out our experience could make up the totality of our experience. And these are the places, the things that we cling to. And it's kind of worth, you know, sometimes it's worth respecting the Buddha's choices as how he decided to parcel things out, at least for the purposes of our investigation, even if some of these categories feel a bit weird and, you know, not necessarily how we would, we would pass things out. Because he really wanted to point to how how we cling in each of these domains. So these five candors are five, five areas, five threads of our experience that we cling to, and it's the clinging to them that creates the rope burn. So none of, none, the problem is not any of these things in and of themselves, any of these bits of our experience, but our relationship to them. Because we invest them, we credit them with more solidity and more reliability than they actually have. So um, I think the quote that I read this morning from Ajahn Chah was talking about the defilements. And this is very traditional Buddhist language. And sometimes, you know, for some of us, it might be a little bit off-putting. But the defilements is shorthand for the processes of clinging, for holding on to, to things, greed, um, hatred, which is trying to get rid of them, and delusion, not seeing them clearly, not seeing their nature clearly as it actually is. So this is the, the problem is not stuff in and of itself, it's what we do with it, the clinging and the grasping and the confusion in the way that we perceive it. So these similes that come with the five candors are offered in the service of kind of um, wising us up a bit, making us see more clearly, to see the changing and impersonal nature of these things. And wisdom, it said, develops in three stages. So the first stage of wisdom is to actually get information, to hear a proposition. And then we reflect on it for ourselves, we digest it. So that's the second stage. And the third stage is to see it directly in one's own experience. And our meditation, the clarity of mind that we're developing and encouraging during our meditation really helps with this. And so sometimes we may have a direct, a direct realization or a direct insight into some of these these things that are pointed to when we're sitting on our meditation cushion. But you might also have aha moments, kind of when you're halfway out of the bathroom or washing up, so on. You know, we kind of, um, we can be taken by surprise as to when we suddenly have these moments of clarity. And sometimes it feels like none of them happen when we're on our cushion. And why are we investing all this time and effort on our cushion or our bench or our chair? But actually, we're priming the mind to be clearer and more receptive and more insightful. So the fact that you have your major insights in the bathroom doesn't mean that you should spend all your retreat in the bathroom. Just, um, yeah. So there's this, there's this kind of process of, of the development of wisdom that goes from hearing a teaching, reflecting on it to direct experience. But of course, you know, again, life doesn't always work like that. Sometimes it's not such a nice order. Life is going to show us things before we feel ready to see them. And so the kind of direct experience of something is, is thrust upon us. 
And that's particularly the case with the, the first of these five heaps or the five streams of experience, the five khandhas, K-H-A-N-D-A-H-A. D-H-A, um, yeah, anyway. Um, which is rupa or material form, which means body in all the sense of bodies. So these bodies are bodies, human bodies, other human bodies, animal bodies, but also material objects. So any kind of material form. But the one that creates most, most dukkha for us is the, this body that we identify with, that we conventionally and appropriately call me. I mean, it's helpful for know, to know that this is my body and these are my clothes and not your clothes and that's my room and not your room and which one my car is and so on. But we, we believe somehow that we own them and should be c in control of them. And, and we may think, no, we don't. Of course, you know, we realize that it's not under our control. But what happens when we suddenly you know, get an intimation of sickness or we notice our, you know, our hair turning grey or falling out or um, we suddenly discover that we need a reading light to read our notes <laughs> and have to print them in a very large font and so on. There's somehow this this sense of oh, this, is, this shouldn't be happening to me. You know, getting old, getting sick, dying is something that happens to other people. So w we notice ourselves, and, and you know, this is so easily, the mind on, on retreat, when it's got fewer distractions, it can so amplify things, can't it? Like, you know, a pain in the body suddenly becomes a terminal illness on your cushion or a little discomfort in the in your teeth and suddenly you're losing <laughs> three teeth and so on and uh, we can just see how attached we are to the body being how it how we want it to be being comfortable being always comfortable being somehow not subject to the same rules of change and decay as other people's. And there's a whole industry that's built on that, trying to create the illusion of eternal youth, you know, that we get, we buy into to a greater or lesser extent. Or, you know, our body is not the shape that we want it to be. Or it doesn't perform in the way that we want it to perform. And we suffer a lot over this. Or our friends and our loved ones suddenly become ill. And um, again, it's, it takes us by surprise, you know. And there's a, there's a way in which society portrays kind of sickness and dying as somehow a mistake that shouldn't happen, or we kind of try and hide it away from, from, from ourselves. Yeah. Kind of sanitized away. Or there's a belief that, you know, those who are the professionals who, and I know some of you, this is your work to, look after the sick, there's a kind of unrealistic expectation that we might impose on ourselves or that other people project onto us of what we should be able to do to, um, to help them. And so the Buddha really wanted us to contemplate this over and over again, you know, in, in advance. So there, there's... Um, these daily reflections that you might know. I am of the nature to, to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I'm of the nature to sicken. I've not gone beyond sickness. I'm of the nature to die. I've not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. 
And then the third one, the fifth one rather, is about karma. Really, it boils down to what Mary Oliver says, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So to really recognize that this body is in a constant process of change and it's not mine and actually you know there's so much that we know now about there are more non-human cells in this body than there are human ones we're actually a kind of ecosystem rather than an individual and then that applies to things as well to our possessions you know they have a they have a shelf life and if we take ownership of them they suffer a friend of mine recently somebody was staying with them and a broke a mug that they'd owned for like 40 or 50 years that had been given to them when they were a student and and they were they were kind of trying not to be upset by it but you could tell they were really they were really really upset that this this mug had gone and yet, you know, they themselves were familiar with this teaching from Ajahn Chah that, you know, when you have a precious cup or a precious, precious glass or bowl, to actually, why not look at it as already broken? Kind of have in mind that it could break at any time. It doesn't stop you from enjoying it, caring for it. But, you know, sooner or later, it's going to go. So the Buddha said that the the way t- we could consider body and material form is like foam on a river. I'm going to share the similes that come in this in this particular teaching. So he says, practitioners suppose that these this river Ganges was carrying along a great lump of foam. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a lump of foam? So too, monks, whatever kind of form there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, A monk or a a practitioner inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it. And it would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in form? So what's it like to consider this body as foam? Foam changes shape. It coalesces for a time and then it disperses. It's insubstantial. How does that image land? And this is just, it's a perception, a way of seeing. It's not making, trying to make some ultimate claim or statement about the body, but it's aiming to just um, offer an antidote to the way that we kind of really take this as solid and a reminder. And it said that seeing in this way, if we can see all form in this way, we lose our fascination or our enchantment with it. It ceases to enchant us in the sense of cast a spell over us. When one becomes disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate and the mind disentangles from it and becomes free. So when we're suffering over some kind of aspect of clinging to form, whether our own form or somebody else's form or things, you know, maybe this is a helpful image to bear in mind. You know, this is like clinging to a piece of foam. So when we're suffering, let's feel this invitation to let go. So the second one, the second heap or stream is Vedana or feeling, feeling tones. And that's feeling in the 
kind of narrower, more kind of refined technical sense that we get it in these Dharma teachings of pleasantness and unpleasantness. And because we're sensitive beings, every experience that we have has this flavor of pleasantness or unpleasantness. Sometimes it's more evident, sometimes it's a little bit more mm, neutral, a little bit subtler and sometimes a little bit harder to discern. But if we think about it, much of our life, most of our life is a searching for the pleasant, pleasant experience and moving, moving away from unpleasant towards pleasant. So even just, you know, when we change our posture, can investigate that. So there's a move from pleasant, unpleasant towards pleasant. And we've already, we've already, we already know and have reaped the benefits in our life of kind of maturing out of some of that. Like, you know, we learn as we grow up the, the value of delaying gratification or in certain circumstances that actually the instantly pleasant is not the best choice, the value of restraint. You know, we learn to queue up for the meal when we're hungry rather than just rush to the front and dive into the pot. And there's a value, we feel the kind of value of that. Actually, that makes for better experience or sitting still in the hall, even though there's the temptation to move, that actually bearing with a certain amount of discomfort or unpleasant sensation often has a has a value in itself. But still what mostly drives us is this kind of bouncing around looking for looking for nice experience, looking for pleasant experience. So this is a, a place to be really curious in this quality of pleasant and unpleasant Vedana. And we can see that they're less substantial than we often think they are. So Caroline was talking about mushroom stroganoff last night. What is your mushroom stroganoff? <laughs> Something that, you know, on the first encounter with it is wonderfully pleasant and then we keep repeating it and somehow that valence of pleasantness changes. Um, we can play with kind of giving them, giving them valences from minus 10 to plus 10 or whatever and just see how fluctuating these things are. Or we identify, you know, a pain in the knee and initially there's just this response, oh, that's really unpleasant. And then we stay with it a bit longer and start to just feel there's a sensation maybe of sharpness or of heat or something. And actually, maybe it's not quite as bad as we thought doesn't mean don't move your leg and look after your knees <laughs> or a sound you know um, the sound of the sheep when the sound when the sheep are going is it pleasant or unpleasant you know, a lot of it depends on what we're expecting and our mood you know and then it's not just it's not just um physical sensations but also states of mind and maybe that's even more um has more impact on us like how many times do we find ourselves wanting to get away from an unpleasant state of mind and to get to a pleasant one yeah. and often we make it worse so it's said that the the untrained mind doesn't know of any way of escaping from an experience of unpleasantness except to seek a pleasant one to replace it with. So the impulse to reach for our phone or to go to the tea station or the, you don't have a cookie jar here, I don't think, but you know, wherever, to just distract ourselves out of un unpleasant. But actually, if we pause and stay with the unpleasant, is it really so bad? Is it really so un intolerable? And how much do we make it worse with our reactivity? You know, so probably most of you are familiar with the other simile of firing the arrows, that you struck with one arrow. And in our attempts to kind of get away from the unpleasantness of that first initial ouch, we fire more and more and more. Yeah. 
So the Buddha said that this experience of pleasant and unpleasantness, these Vedana are like bubbles on the surface of a river or on the surface of water. And we can investigate that in our experience. Do they, do they not pop often on contact? You know, the closer we come to the experience, the more we investigate it, the more you find that actually this quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness is so fleeting it's so changing and often it just shifts and ends of its own accord if we don't interfere so he says suppose practitioners that in the autumn when it's raining and big raindrops are falling a water bubble arises and bursts on the surface of the water a person with good sight would inspect it ponder it and carefully investigate it and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a water bubble? So too, practitioners, whatever kind of feeling of Vedana, of feeling of pleasant or unpleasant there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a practitioner inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in feeling? So another invitation is the thing that... um, we're reacting to is it simply an experience of pleasant and unpleasant and what happens when we see it in that way and we remember we see it like a bubble okay the third one is perceptions sanya s-a-n-y-n-y-a ends with squiggles on So perception is how we see the world, how we see experiences. Mm. So, for example, the perception Thursday, which I think is today. (laughs) How is the perception Thursday different here from the perception Thursday at home (laughs) or at work? (laughs) Is it actually quite irrelevant here, except for our little group meetings? And what has the perception Thursday meant at different times in your life? Um, Caroline was talking yesterday about the perception of the sea. On one day it might signify one thing, on another day it might signify something else. Or what's your perception of Gaia House? Has it changed from your first visit here? Has it changed on this visit here? (laughs) Somebody was sharing that it's smaller than they remembered. I have some really dear friends who perceive Gaia House as a place of terrible austerity and um, kind of austerity and severity. And other people who, you know, it feels like their favourite place to come and the whole planet. And whose perception is true. And maybe we've slid between those perceptions depending on, you know, how we're feeling about being here at different times. I know my perceptions of Gaia House have fluctuated, you know. Or our perception of ourself. Who am I? Who we are maybe feels different when we're here from when we're at work, when we're with our parent, if our parent is still around, when we're with our child or our partner. Who are we? And who's that annoying person that we've identified (laughs) who's 
responsible for the aversion that's arising on our retreat or the person in our memory who keeps coming into our retreat. And then, you know, something else happens and you completely change your perception and suddenly that person is a delightful person. Or the mug in the kitchen that we've decided is our favourite mug and we kind of try and make sure that we get hold of that mug at the start of each day and somehow manage to hold on to it. And suddenly that mug that was just a neutral mug has become my mug. Yeah. So this is, this is perception. And, you know, you can see where this is going. So the Buddha said the perception is like a mirage. It changes as we move. Yeah. So he says, suppose practitioners that in the last month of the hot season, at high noon, a shimmering mirage appears. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what kind of, su what substance could there be in a mirage? So two monks, whatever kind of perception there is, whether past, future, present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a practitioner inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, in a, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in perception? So if we find ourselves getting hung up on a perception, you know, we can investigate it and say, is there something mirage-like about what I'm clinging to, what I'm making into the source of suffering for myself? And then the fourth stream is Sankara's, this word, which is really what we, it's a kind of very difficult thing to find a, a translation for, but it's basically what everything that we do with our perceptions, we, what we make and do with our perceptions, our experience. So it gets translated as, as fabrications or um, mental constructs or uh, conditions. What's it, how does it get translated in this one? Uh, volitional formations. So it's also our wishes, our impulses, our stories, our arguments, the dramas that we create in all that we do. And I don't just mean dramas as in melodramas. I mean just the kind of play of our life, the stories of our life, our views, our beliefs, our thoughts, our kind of patterns, our personal character patterns and habitual ways of being. Somebody said the river of our life and the riverbed that it's carved out for itself. Uh, fabrications or stories is a, is a good one. And many of these are a source of suffering to us, aren't they? So how many stories of should do we carry around and suffer over? I should they should, I should have, you know, the regrets, the blame. And some of you have been really noticing how some kind of, th some stories and some thoughts are not very sticky. They're quite easy to just kind of see as all oh, the minds just, you know, daydreaming or fantasizing. But then there are the stories that we really, really have taken ownership of and kind of used to navigate and steer our life. And sometimes they serve us well, but a lot of them don't serve us well. Yeah. Or our ways of justifying our positions and being right. And if you start looking what's underneath the story, you'll just find another story. So the Buddha said these are like a banana tree. And a banana tree is... And a or a plantain tree is a, is a kind of, the, the actual tree is a bit like an onion. It's just a sheaf of leaves 
There's no actual wooden trunk to a banana tree. So the Buddha says, suppose practitioners that a person needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, would take a sharp axe and enter a forest. There they would see the trunk of a large banana tree, straight and fresh, without a fruit bud core. They would cut it down at the root, cut off the crown and unroll the coil. As they unroll the coil, they would not find even softwood, let alone heartwood. A man or a person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in the trunk of a banana tree? So too, practitioners, whatever kind of sankharas, whatever kind of formations that there are, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a practitioner inspects them, ponders them and carefully investigates them. As they investigate them, they appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in these volitional formations, in these fabrications, in these constructs. What one of my Dharma friends calls banana productions. <laughs> Our stories are like banana productions. Yeah. And the story of the banana tree is just another story too. So I don't want to say that, you know, we have to eradicate stories from our life because our life was made of stories and we can't live without stories. But we, again, we invest them with more substance and more reality than is appropriate. Whereas if we, if we can really understand the banana production nature of our stories, we can kind of be a bit more choiceful about when we pick them up and when we put them down and choosing which stories to pick up, which story is helpful. Is this story helpful? It's actually perhaps more important than is this story true some of the time. So the Dharma itself is a story. Christianity is a story. What are we doing with it? The purpose of the story of the Dharma is to liberate the heart from dukkha, to end suffering. As Buddha said, it's not to carry the story around with us on our head, like the raft. The raft is a story. <laughs> yeah. So, banana banana trees and banana productions. But we want something. We wa we still want something to kind of say, okay, yep, well that's true. Yeah. Body, it's like foam. Vedana, feeling tones, they're just bubbles that pop. Perceptions are mirage-like. Our stories are just like the leaves of a, the layers of an onion or the leaves of a banana tree. But surely, you know, I feel I'm here. What's left? Okay, I am the consciousness that's behind all of this. You know, I am. I am the knower and the knowing of it. And again, we put more into that than really belongs there because we kind of don't want to acknowledge perhaps that consciousness actually, it changes with what's being experienced. So there isn't really an experiencer that we can find, you know, again, that we can find that's independent from the experience being had. Yeah. Whether we believe there's something behind or not, you know, that's, but we if, if we really investigate our experience, you can't find an experience uh, independent from experience. So why try to hold on to that? Because whenever we try to hold on to something, we suffer. And in a sense, you know, I think if we, if we kind of really cling to that, it reinforces the self that wants to cling to everything else. 
can investigate that. So the, the Buddha said that consciousness is like a conjurer, like a magician at the crossroads. Suppose practitioners that a magician or a magician's apprentice would display a magical illusion at a crossroads. I think entertainers largely hung out at crossroads in the time of the Buddha, because that's where they'd get most customers. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a magical illusion? So too, practitioners, whatever kind of consciousness there is, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a practitioner inspects it, ponders it and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in consciousness? So I kind of like that because the, the analogy with a, a conjurer or magician doing tricks, because actually if you're, if you're the person watching an accomplished magician, you don't know how they're doing it, you know, but you know they're doing tricks. And it's the same way that we don't know how consciousness works. Nobody knows how consciousness works. It's kind of the ultimate mystery. But we, we can see that it, it does play tricks on us in all these ways that the Buddha's pointed to. So we don't need to grasp that either. Any effort to hold on to anything is, is dukkha, is stressful. Or any effort to hold on to anything beyond its, beyond its appropriateness or beyond its usefulness. And so that there are these, these five streams and we don't need to, you know, one can get a little bit hung up, like trying to differentiate exactly where does, where does perception end and fabrication begin or is a Vedana a perception or not a perception? Because obviously our perception colours our experience of pleasant or unpleasantness. And I think it's not very necessary to um, have our five heaps or our five strands neatly separated because the point of all this is whatever we cling to is suffering. The point of, the point of these images and the point of this teaching is actually to lessen our tendency to cling, to actually invite us to let go of the rope and stop burning our hands. You know? um, Joseph Goldstein has a saying that I love. He says, it really does not matter to what you do not cling. <laughs> so if, these, if the, the categorization into five candors is just something that just does your head in, don't worry about it. The message is about when we see that we're clinging to something and it hurts, there's an invitation to, to let go. And actually I find that rather uplifting in this because we could say, yeah, okay, the totality of a human being is these five five heaps of stuff that we cling to and it's all bad because everywhere I look there's clinging, you know. But actually that means everywhere we look there's an opportunity to notice that we're clinging to something and we can let it go. And in the letting go is peace. Yeah. And this is really um, going against the grain of our cultural, societal, and it's not just the pathology of our society because it was what the Buddha's parents did to him and so on, that this human illusion that all these things should somehow be under our control. And the sense that success in life or happiness depends on having stuff under control. Whereas this path is, is kind of inviting us to see that happiness actually is more related to our ability to let go. So you can take these similes as a kind of antidote to the illusion of, subs of, sub of substantiality as a and maybe at times it's a healing antidote to apply. 
as again not to say that you know this body isn't real this consciousness isn't real the experience isn't real but it's just not as real as we think it is it's not real in the way that we think it is I'd like to end actually just by reading this this passage in full and that you can just sit and kind of let it wash through as a as a meditative contemplation. Just an invitation to ponder ponder in this way. And if it doesn't really resonate for you, then just let the words wash through and go. But sometimes there's something um, something soothing in this repetition. And I find I've found as over the years some of these sutta passages that become this passages from the discourses that become familiar, you know, they kind of pop into the mind like little koans at different times that can be can be really helpful. So, on one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling on the bank of the river Ganges, and he addressed the monks thus, the practitioners thus, practitioners. Suppose that this river Ganges was carrying along a great lump of foam, a person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to them to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a lump of foam? So too, whatever kind of form there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a practitioner inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it. And it would appear to them to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in form? Suppose that in the autumn, when it's raining and big raindrops are falling, a water bubble arises and bursts on the surface of the water. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to them to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a water bubble? So too, whatever kind of feeling there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a practitioner inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in feeling? Suppose that in the last month of the hot season, at high noon, a shimmering mirage appears. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to them to be void, hollow and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a mirage? So too, whatever kind of perception there is, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a practitioner inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it. And it would appear to them to be void, hollow, and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in perception? Suppose that a person needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, would take a sharp axe and enter a forest. There they would see the trunk of a large banana tree, straight and fresh, without a fruit bud core. They would cut it down at the root, cut off the crown, and unroll the coil. As they unrolled the coil, they would not find even softwood, let alone heartwood. 
A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it and carefully investigate it and it would appear to them to be void, hollow and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in the trunk of a banana tree? So too, whatever kind of sankharas of fabrications there are, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a person inspects them, ponders them and carefully investigates them. As they investigate them, they appear to him to be void, hollow and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in fabrications? Suppose that a magician or a magician's apprentice would display a ma magical illusion at a crossroads. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to them to be void, hollow and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a magical illusion? So too, whatever kind of consciousness there is, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a practitioner inspects it, ponders it and carefully investigates it. And it would appear to them to be void, hollow and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in consciousness? Seeing thus, the instructed noble disciple becomes disenchanted with form, disenchanted with feeling, disenchanted with perception, disenchanted with fabrications, disenchanted with consciousness. Becoming disenchanted, they become dispassionate and through dispassion, their mind is freed. And so we can let go even of these words. Just letting the river of experience run. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.